I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast presented by Zwift. We have been on fire on fuego. It is the Tour of Spain (laughs) after all in this Vuelta with our picks, but we certainly got this stage uh, wrong. I went with Luis Leon Sanchez. I can't remember who Benji went with. But it didn't. It didn't turn out uh, that way. You just don't you dare say Mads Pedersen. You mentioned Mads Pedersen. No, you as went with a Lewis rider Leon. for this. You mentioned a rider for uh, Mads Pedersen as a rider that could do well on this parkour, and I was like, Nah, you're wrong. <laughs> so at some point, <laughs> you didn't mention him for this stage, and I just completely threw it out of there. Oh, yeah, true. You picked Lewis on. Wow. It's been a, I, I don't know who I went with, maybe Fred Wright from the break. It's been a long season. We're at the back end of it. Um, but yeah, this stage was not a breakaway stage from Talavera de la Reina uh, to Talavera de la Reina. They do the Puerto del Pialago twice, 9K, 6% with about uh, 8Ks of semi-interrupted, shallow 5% climbing before it. Importantly, the peak of the final climb is 43 kilometers from the finish. Uh, so unless you are Mark Hirschi 2020, you are not holding that gap solo from that climb against the peloton. Um, you'd need a, a good strong breakaway of 10 plus riders, which did not eventuate. We had three up the road, uh, Okamika for Burgos, a regular feature in breaks throughout the season, not just in the Vuelta, and Brandon McNulty, who is... A serious guy on this sort of parkour, big engine, 60, you know, late 60 kilograms. He's not like a 58 kilo featherweight. He can put out a lot of power on the flat and a false flat downhill. So you do not want to be having, say, Juan Pei being the only guy chasing him on the flat. <laughs> so he was a danger. Craddock was in the, was it Chaspatat? That's the official position he was yes. in, Benji. Yeah, Chaspatat. He was uh, trying to bridge towards the front after missing out. He tried initially to be in it the first time around, then his break failed. But when the other break established, he was the one that tried to bridge over. He crossed a gap of, I think, two minutes, and then he got stuck with 40 seconds to the front of the race. And it kind of remained that way, unfortunately, for Lawson the Duck. And uh, yeah, that's the end of the story for Lawson the Duck as well in this stage, I'm afraid, because he did not survive in between the breakaway and the peloton, and the peloton... Like you mentioned, it was not only Juanpe, it was the entire team of Trek controlling to try and make this stage a Mes Pedersen stage. And the question would be, would they be able to balance the pacing out as in they want to try and catch the breakaway near the top of the second climb of the day? Because if they wait too long, then you've got only the descend and the small flat pot at the end to try and catch a breakaway still remaining at front, which would be more difficult. So they would have to climb faster than the breakaway which is often the opposite of what we usually see right because let's say that we get like a a sprint stage with a few hills in there we often see bike exchange go slower than the breakaway on a hill on this case they needed to ride faster right trek than the breakaway this is the beauty of having someone in the shape of mads pedersen is you can literally say to juan pay kenny bernard 
ride this climb as hard as you can. I will not drop, um, and he will be fine in the wheels on a 6% climb when those guys are pacing. You don't need, like with a Gronewegen or someone, to nurse them over it. That's the beauty of Pedersen's shape right now. It makes their job just a little bit easier. They didn't get much help. Groves uh, was 32 minutes back yesterday. I'm not sure what his shape is like at the back end of this Grand Tour now. Pedersen is carrying his shape beautifully. And so Craddock goes back. Breakaway's doomed. They catch it on sort of halfway up that second last climb. And a curious team comes to the front. But before we get to that, mention our show partner, Zwift. There's the upcoming changes to Zwift, the platform, including the ability to race your segment personal best. But there's never been a better time to start training indoors because on October 3rd, Zwift are breaking down the barriers by making indoor training cheaper and easier to set up than ever and bringing maybe the best value, I think the best value, trainer to the market ever coming pre-installed with Shimano, SRAM, or Campag. Cassette of your choice for 8 to 12 speed. It's the Zwift Hub. Just sign up for notifications for when the Zwift Hub goes on sale or goes on sale after maybe October 3rd in your geography at a later date. Or to find out more about Zwift, go to Zwift.com through the link down below. But Bahrain came to the front. Mikel Landa, he's not made a break. Uh, Thibaut Pino drew my ire the other day, but Mikel Landa has escaped scot-free, but he's been pretty anonymous, this Vuelta, yeah. uh, and your boy Nibali. I feel like, I don't know, they, they're going for right, obviously. I don't really know what their point was like there's no way they're ever dropping Pedersen I, I watched the tape just before we recorded like Pedersen was 10th wheel yeah exactly and when teams go to the front going into the sense and so of afterwards as well then we think is it to get people ahead so that they're safer for that descent but this was not the case either in this case I would say right I don't really know because they gave up control to Movistar Movistar then brought Mars forward in very defensive mode. Perhaps they saw Raul's tweet this morning that said if Mars finishes in second in the Puelta, they don't get relegated. There's some <laughs> news on that we're going to talk about probably longer than the stage at the end of this podcast um, about the UCI relegation battle. They took over. Carapaz took the Cayman points. I don't know. They even helped a little bit in the Valley, Benji. I don't yep. know. Um, anyway. Break's caught, and you know what that means. <laughs> when the break is caught with 30Ks left in a flat finish, they dawdle along, and we'll zoom to the finish. Trekker <laughs> there, 3Ks to go. The GC teams have been assuming positions. Yumbo are there, so we're like, okay, must be for Turnus and in the sprint. And Ineos, they have Ben Turner, I guess. Like This sprint field is pretty thin uh, <laughs> to say the least at this point uh, Vermeer for Alperson de Koenig because is Malia still here or he did I is I think home? I didn't think yeah, he's still here he's second last today okay McClay's okay so maybe the answer for the Bahrain pacing is so that uh, Caden Groves, who had Durbridge with him, Milano, who had Oliveira with him, and McClay and Merlier stayed behind. I accept Possibly. that yeah. as a 
possibility um, to help Trek keep those fast guys behind. And that's what they did. Anyway, very simple. Trek, because of the easier finish to the stage with the break already caught, were able to recover numbers. They had Kirsch. There was a flying move from a Finesse Laporte-style move. Scottson. Was it Scottson with the Australian bands? Yeah. I thought it yeah. was, was going to work. Uh, there was a possibility there because you know that if a team like Trek is spending so many riders on climbs to get the breakaway back, then a rider like Scottson can make that move and there might not be enough riders left to have him caught in the final. But I still believe that Trek was strong enough in this final to be able to control the last kilometer here. Three riders for the last kilometer. On paper, that can work in a reduced group like this. Let's say that it's a full-on Tour de France sprint stage then three riders might become troublesome. You never know, because other people will try and wave over you. Here, there's not really that danger, because there's not that many sprint teams with multiple riders left to set up their sprinters. So it was pretty clear that Trek's team was the one that was going to control the sprint, that was going to be the one that let it out for the peloton. Scottson made that move, Scottson got caught, and Trek basically launched the, uh, the lead out for Peterson. And the intriguing part is that we've got Fred Wright sitting in the position just behind Peterson, and I was like, Come on, right? Come on, beat the better sprinter. Because on paper, Peterson should obliterate the sprinting field, right? He even went too early. I know he likes to go early, but he he did go too early because Peterson's initial 10-second burst is much better than Fred Wright's. Uh, but he gave him a long time in the draft. This has a curved finish, if we're going to talk about safety and crashing also at the end of this podcast that came up today. But I believe this was a curved finish to the left in the sprint. So is that supposed to be happening <laughs> or did they think this would be a group of maybe they listened to us and they thought this would be a small break even so the small break would have a sprint so anyway the the reason the curve was important is it kind of broke the draft of right it mean he meant he had to go the long way around the right of Pedersen. Pedersen still beats him easily despite giving right the draft the entire time he's in incredible shape this is his third stage of the Vuelta. Uh, obviously, the points jersey he wrapped up a long time ago. The Mesh, uh, he sprinted for Alperson to Koenig, and he forced, I think, Turner wide. Turner's got a not a bad sprint under the bonnet there, Clock. Um, he came fourth, beating Turnerson in fifth, Jonas Clock sixth, Goldstein, then Garcia, Pierna, Miguel Angel Lopez, ninth, Van Pyle, tenth. So not the deepest sprint field you'll see in your life, but Pedersen's in incredible shape. And if you can whittle the field down to five or six guys that can just about sprint, it makes life very, very easy for you and your team. So huge win for yeah. him. Uh, GC unchanged. Any other last thoughts from this stage? Benji Carapaz and KOM, and he looks pretty set for that. Yeah, it's just very cool to see Peterson obliterate the green jersey like this. Kind of in a similar fashion that about Finar did in the Tour de France, for example. Initially scoring a lot of points, making sure that the pure sprinters aren't interested anymore. We saw that in this Felta as well. And then Peterson continued that onwards on stages that aren't necessarily the pure sprints. After scoring significant points in the Pure sprints already, getting second, I think, three times in a row. He is two times in a row, correction. Actually, three times in a row. Anyway, regardless of that, he continued that onwards and has three stage wins now in a Vuelta. That's wonderful performance. Love to see it. And I sincerely hope that Peterson changes his mind from this year and tries to go for a green jersey in the future. Although this year was kind of the kind of green jersey that you won the 
a Peterson informed to also go for with the Cobblest agents as well in mind. Now, we don't know if he will in the future. I'd like to see it. Everybody might like to see it. Do I wish he was at the World Championships? Yes, but that is apparently not the case. So we have to live with it. And um, next to that, Wright is also the kind of rider where it's intriguing, you know, because this proves once again that sprinting in a larger group is so different from sprinting in a smaller group. There's so many more tactics in smaller groups compared to group sprints where in this situation, Wright is sprinting from the perfect position in the wheel of Peterson and he ends up getting second on a sprint stage like this. And put Wright in a smaller reduced group like the one we had with Herada and so forth and he gets beaten by Herada. That is it's so intriguing. Easily, by bike lengths. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's so special that I don't think you can compare the sprinting ability in a small group versus in a, a big group sprint. I think there's a difference between the two, and I think this is one example of that again. But it's cool to see him get a few uh, more points as well, because he's second in point classification, right? Yeah, 174 points. So just because of breakaways and because of his close calls on stage, I think, Two times third, two times fourth, and now second. It's significant for Fred Wright. What do you think is like the next step for him next to getting a stage win? Do you think what kind of rider like? Is it getting that breakaway stage? That's an obvious one for me. But is this a rider that if he can up his sprint a bit more, that he could become a rider like a Peterson that could fight for a green jersey in the future? Or do you see something different? Uh I see him more as winning a cobbled classic, World Tour Cobbled Classic next year, like mm-hmm. Hen Vavelhem, Omlope, um, tenth in Twice. Flanders this year. Flanders is maybe a little bit too much, but he he's just got great shape, very fit, um, can get over, you know, repeated climbs and with the right moves, he should I mean he even Probably Milano Sanremo is too much of a punch on Poggio, but I don't see why he couldn't get over the Cipressa. Maybe he did this year, or it was just Moric and Tratnik from Bahrain. Can't remember. But he should be fine for that as well in that team. Um, I wonder about, I think he just extended with Bahrain uh, till the end of 24, if I read that release properly. Um, How will they... Tratnik's gone, Hmm. I think... He gets like he's in a good spot there, Benji. He doesn't yeah. have to do except this year he had to ride for Colbrelli and Omloop from memory. Yeah. Um, that seems to I don't expect that to be next year. I think he pretty much gets to do what he wants in the tour, the Vuelta, although Haig does after Haig left, and in the classics, he's at least co leader with Morich. Yeah, I think that's that's a good assessment of what he should do. I hadn't actually thought about the cobbles that much after this stage but you're very right that that is an area that he's likely going to be focusing in as co-leader for Bahrain and I think he's indeed in a good spot because he's also you've got Mohoric who's the longer attacker in that team then and you've got Wright who is quite compatible with that that he can stay within a group behind and still have a kick towards the end obviously we just spoke about small groups versus big groups I think if he analyzes the tactics in those small group sprints that he can also get better results in those so I think in general, I'm just very hyped to see what Fred Wright will do in the future. He's still young and he's got a, a bright future ahead of him. And I can't bloody wait until this guy gets his bloody Grand Tour stage. Like, how, how many times can he get a top four in a Grand Tour stage without winning a Grand Tour stage? It's uh, absolutely mad. But I think that's about it when it comes to today's stage, right? Nothing changed yep. in GC? or Nothing changed in GC, I don't think. He and Craddock are the two guys. If they leave this welter empty-handed, they have brought fantastic legs and it's just... 
it's just not worked out. Craddock's also in great shape, but just got caught in the middle uh, there today and was good in Nevada, etc. But anyway, the news, bigger news off the pitch um, that related to Fred Wright that kicked up a storm on Twitter was a release, like a long-form release. It's called a long read from uh, Yumbo Visma on their website, but they tweeted it out. And it's, whenever you see the quote-tweet ratio, you know it's something controversial on a normally like a team release, not that controversial. So you, I'll open it up. I was like, ooh. And he had a few things to say about the crash on stage 16 where he abandoned the race the next morning. Uh, as that related to Fred Wright. Anyway, I'll just read out uh, the paragraphs from Roglic. He said, this is from the article, uh, this was not okay, referring to the collision with Fred Wright. This shouldn't happen. People move on swiftly as if nothing happened. For me, that doesn't apply. This is not the way I want the sport to continue, and I want to make that clear. He said he's feeling slightly better this morning. And he said, I can walk a little bit. I'm happy with that for the moment. After the crash, it took me time to straighten things out. I asked myself, how can this be? My conclusion is that the way this crash happened is unacceptable. Not everyone saw it correctly. The crash was not caused by a bad road or a lack of safety, but by a rider's behavior. I don't have eyes in my back. Otherwise, I would have run wide. Right came from behind and rode the handlebars out of my hands before I knew it so just to bear in mind that's probably been translated from dutch or roglic's english which is his second language to dutch and then back into english i don't know just just something to bear in mind but let's go through the crash benji play by play right remind everybody the race situation and what happened and the different angles we eventually saw well basically this was the stage where roglic attacked earlier on and a group formed at the front including peterson ackerman uh, Roglic from Popol and I think Fred Wright as well, obviously, as he's involved in this yeah. incident. Now, the footage of what happened in the final kilometer, this crash was very limited on the official broadcast. The helicopter got to a a yeah a view where Roglic and Wright were just out of the screen when the crash happened. The front view was not really clear what caused the crash, so we had to dissect screens, the footage from fans by the side of the road, and... The best footage that I found is on a YouTube channel called El Celo Ciclista. The video is called Viviendo la Etapa desde el Helicóptero de Vuelta. Yeah, that's my terrible Spanish. In that video at around 8.17, you see perfect shot, a perfectly shot footage of the crash happening on camera. Mes Pedersen being the one sprinting from the front, Ackermann in the wheel of Van Poppel, in the wheel of Ackermann, and Fred Wright directly in the wheel of Van Poppel. So four riders in a row. Roglic had, before these riders entered the final stretch, been at the front the entire time, making sure the gap towards the peloton group behind consistently stayed the same. Roglic went to the left side, that's when Pedersen launched. Roglic moves back on the left side of the road and goes back into the group, towards the group, from the left side to the right side of the road. And in doing so, he is stopping for a bit next to Van Poppel and Fred Wright. And if we look closely, we can see that when Primoz Roglic is in that position, it seems like straight up Roglic and Fred Wright tangle into each other. And I don't see Fred Wright moving to the left at this moment. I don't see Fred Wright making a move to the left. Roglic is a tiny bit ahead of Roglic. Uh, Roglic is a tiny bit ahead of Fred Wright. 
just before the crash happens. But when the crash happens, it is clear to me that Fred Wright is in front of Roglic and his elbow is in front of Roglic. And it looks like Roglic kind of entangles with the backside of, of Fred Wright and therefore crashes on the floor. That's how I interpret this crash. Do you have a different opinion based on seeing some pictures or what is your take? No, I agree, and I think most of Twitter agrees. It seems from the response to the statement, it's the crash was 100% Primoz Roglic's fault. Now, in the moment, everyone says uh, Roglic is very unlucky. We didn't go into detail analyzing the crash because the guys crash heavily. We, you know, big chance he's crashed himself out of the race. Same with, like, yeah. I don't know. Gagan Hard in Paranis, I always, I don't know why I always refer to that crash. Last year, like crashes in a hairpin and then has a bad concussion. I don't do a detailed analysis of how he made a handling mistake in the hairpin because it's like, like he's hurt himself, he's out of the race, whatever. Like, why would you do that? But if if Roglic is coming out, it's, it's very. It's very surprising to me, Benji, to be laying the blame yep. on Fred Wright, which is 100% not correct. Like, I think it's very unfair to Fred Wright, who was quite diplomatic in the interview after the race. He didn't blame Roglic, but the reality is Roglic has pulled off. He's tried to come back in. Almost seems like he's forgotten Wright's there. Wright is on the barriers. He has nowhere to go. He's following Van Poppel's slipstream. He's entitled to contest the sprint. Yep. He's trying to contest the sprint, and Roglic just chops himself onto him. There's, that's what happened. And I think it's pretty unfair to blame Fred Wright, particularly when, I don't know, it's just like there's other examples of this. Like, did he do this for Cole Brelli? Because that one's more 50-50. Yeah, I don't think they expressly mentioned that during the Colbrelli statements, even though back in the day there was a lot of talk on social media by Roglic camp versus uh, Colbrelli camp, as in the fans, not the people surrounding those riders, that the fans were kind of clashing about it. And in this specific example, I think even the Roglic fans will agree that it's not necessarily Wright's fault in this case. Like, I... I, my reaction was, this is a race incident, and it's caused because Roglic deviates from the left side of the road to the right side of the road, and they hinder each other as a consequence after sprinting next to each other. That's how I viewed this. I'd argue I lean more towards Roglic actually being the cause of the crash than Wright being the cause of the crash, 100%. And my opinion on this statement being put out is, I have less issue with Roglic's statement itself. I have more of an issue with, how did this get to the PR check, like, the public relations team should have stopped this. Like, this is such a PR disaster to happen when you read this article, and it's a, it was obvious to me when you read this that people were going to be upset about it, and I didn't find it, it being okay. Like, crashes happen in cycling all the time, and riders are often a bit more at fault than other riders, but it's part of the sport. Those crashes happen. These are crashes, uh, well... There are crashes caused by excessively dangerous or malicious moves, but this specific one is not one of them. And if you're going to start having riders blame each other for every single crash, then Tony Martin needs a P.O. box outside his house to make sure the letters in his house don't overflow. But in all honesty, like, I think that I believe Jumbo Visma should have known better than published this article. It opens the Pandora's box basically towards 
both Wright and also towards Roglic. Because especially Roglic. Because people yeah. are always kind of saying, oh, he can't handle a bike. You know, this opens up that discussion. But when he's crashed out, yeah. no one does that in good faith, right? Yeah. And also, like, this this conversation wouldn't have happened if this article would not come out. It's it's very clear that this article is the cause um, for more discussion on the topic. And I think this was not the right move to do. Now it's bundled in an article talking about safety and so forth like i find it fine to talk about safety and so forth but it's just not a good look well that's where i think that's the key though this is the first half of the article and then there's comments from richard pluger um the head of yumbo about safety more in general um not all of which i agree with there's some of the hierarchy stuff in there which i don't agree with um but i think from what I can see, their top GC guy or co-top GC guy has crashed out of another Grand Tour, crashed out of the yeah. Tour de France 2021, crashed out of the Tour de France 2022, and now has crashed out of the Vuelta. And I feel like it's like, they, you know, they want to talk about safety. They've just picked the wrong crash to talk about it. The hay bale, the hay bale is the one. Why the fuck? Is there yes. a hay bale in the first week on the road of the biggest race yes. in the world that takes out the second favorite? That's the discussion. <laughs> and, and everyone's like, yes, because people said this is the flip of the coin. Roglic <laughs> crashed and people assumed it was his fault because he's Primoz Roglic and crashes frequently. And that one, like maybe – you know, Sagan, God of Handling, or Pagacha don't yeah. crash, maybe. But a lot of riders crash when a hay bale is dragged in front of them or someone yeah. chops them. And also during that race, Maximilian Schachmann was criticizing the Umbo riders for incidents, which I thought were unfair, the specific incident he referred to. But there was also a segment where I think Roglic and Koos crashed a lotto rider when they tangled up on one of the early stages, um, if my memory serves me right. And you're right, it opens a Pandora box if we're going to... Like, I didn't like the Sharkman comments. I thought they were unfair. I thought they were just labelling him. But, yeah, I, I'm surprised. I thought the Tour de France is the one, or the Colbrelli one, where you make the broader safety statement. Now, apparently, after today's stage happened, Fred Wright brought out no statement. He was not talking to reporters, and apparently Bahrain Victorious will have a statement ready in the coming hours as well based on the Yumbo statement that was made. So I'm curious what's going to be in it. I wouldn't be surprised that it's basically fighting back and this is an entire unnecessary discussion between the two because it shouldn't have been published on Yumbo's side in the first place, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, Fred Wright, like, he seems like a pretty nice guy. I don't think he wants to get in the trenches on Twitter, um, but... Like, yeah, he's got to, or Bahrain have to stand up for their guy in this uh, situation. So, yeah, that was off the field quite odd, um, and I wonder what will come from it. It certainly gave us something extra to talk about on this otherwise pretty sedentary stage. The second piece of news came out of Cycling News, Stephen Ferron there, uh, an exclusive. Perhaps the UCI has been reading my Twitter account, um, <laughs> which is... 
have been talking about some of the injustices of the relegation battle, apparently not confirmed yet, but the 2023 World Tour could include 20 teams, not the 18. That means the two that would get relegated virtually Lotto and Israel as it stands would not be relegated then there would be I don't know like more well than so many pro teams it, they would then have to change the rules so that 25 teams can do grand tours if we're talking about safety that would mean yeah. they need to increase the maximum size of the peloton to 200 riders current limits 176 and then there would be up to 28 teams for other events so um, it's clear what I mean, Toe Gegenhart tweeted asking for uh, solidarity with riders in this position, unfortunate position the other week. There has been solidarity between the teams, in case you didn't know, um, who are at the risk of relegation. All of them, whilst battling hard on the pitch, or on the, on the why have I said pitch twice? It's not a full <laughs> podcast. Uh, in the races, they, they being Cofidis, Bike Exchange, Jayco, EF Education, Easy Post, Movistar, Lotus Sudal, Israel Premier Tech, they have been um, lobbying and almost, I think, I'm not sure exactly, but certainly lobbying and maybe threatening legal action to the UCI saying you need to suspend this. So what do you, I'm not surprised this has come out, Benji, but I think it is, it is unbelievable to make the teams do all this dance, all this stress, 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 stress for eight months to then can it at the end is to me just the worst way to, well, no, the worst way is to go through with an unfair system, but this is the second worst way to do it. Yes, certainly. Now, for context, I believe that the UCI in, I think the ASO was the biggest organization that wanted this. They reduced the amount of teams in World Tour from 20 to 18 before, with the aim to go to 16 at some point. I think that idea to go to 16 was then canned for a bit or might still have been in the plans for the future. I don't know that for certain, but they reduced the amount of World Tour teams on purpose. I think one of the ideas behind it was safety and so forth, like you mentioned. I probably think there's also other reasons involved behind the scenes that uh, I cannot name at the moment, but that's something they did. Now, upping it again from 18 to 20, my first question is, well, let's say we do this. Let's say we up it to 20, we do all this. We're fine with three years of a slight bit more risk, for example, in terms of crashes with a larger peloton. They sign off on it. The riders union is fine for it with it because the, well, the CPA is also fine with it because it offers more uh, work for riders and for staff members in World Tour and so forth. So it's better for the economy of that side. What happens in 2026 then? Do we... Do we just ditch two alter teams with no promotion? Do we ditch four teams with two promotions? Because I'd find it unfair for pro teams if, let's say, there's no promotion then next term. If they, for example, say, okay, next time in 2026, we'll just lose two alter teams, then there's no promotion possible for pro teams. I think that's a no-go. I think it's more obvious that the way to go then is a relegation where you end up with 18 at the top, in Walter again, so four teams would be dropping and two teams would be promoting in that sense. That makes sense? It's what the UCI is going to hope for is that just like two teams fold and that the natural evolution yeah. of teams folding happens. I think that's probably what they hoped would happen. Like maybe in Astana, 
they don't get the funding sorted, so then that takes away one headache. The thing is, you can have a relegation system. It exists in, in football. It doesn't exist in American sports. It doesn't exist in Australian sports, I don't think, like AFL or NRL um, or cricket for the most part. They're closed leagues. You can have relegation, but you have to set it up properly. And Vortas, enemy of the podcast, no, he's actually Vortas has an open invite to come on the podcast. I don't know. I don't know why the podcast account is blocked. We never, we never did anything on the podcast account to to Vortas. Yeah, I spoke to him a few times before we actually got blocked, and I think then eventually we got blocked somewhere towards the end of the Tour de France. I don't know what the exact reason there is, but. That ended up happening on my account, at least. Anyway, I've got his phone number, so I can call him in the middle of the night if I want. <laughs> anyway, open invite to come on. We share his grievances. What he said, he said it's uh, promotion or staying in World Tour or death. There's no relegation. Because if EF get relegated, they're done. Unless their yeah. sponsors are very understanding. No wild cards and no uh, automatic wild cards. No discretionary wild card invites most likely unless carapaz is that big a draw i don't think he is um and so and with no local american calendar very very difficult i would think to convince a sponsor that it's worth staying on board and so he's right in that these other relegation systems have parachute payments where if you get relegated you get a bucket of money i believe Um, They have revenue sharing. They have a system of coming back up the next year. There's all these things which are not in place here. Yes, you have the wild cards, but that's not automatic. That's just if if you're lucky enough that your year where you're better than the first two years, you get a lot of points, then you might be saved. Like Lotto, if they get relegated, it doesn't matter. Um, Whereas EF, just because they're having a bad year this year, but two good years before – that means they don't get wildcards. It just doesn't make sense. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, let us know, is there any relegation system in the world that's on a three-year cycle, not an annual cycle? Is is the reasoning behind it to avoid situations like we had in the last three years to make sure that if something happens in three years that causes some injustice towards a certain team that it doesn't impact them for the three years, if a certain key rider crashes out and is out for a year that it doesn't impact them so severely over three years is that the thought process behind the three-year cycle i think the thought process is yes that evening out bad luck and also so you can say to a sponsor we're guaranteed to be in world tour for three years uh but that also means you're guaranteed to be out of world tour for three years if you get relegated so not great so yeah it's During a pandemic, like with races being cancelled, with different rules in different countries, with riders stuck in certain countries, with riders getting COVID, with COVID rules changing between races by this race organiser, races by that race organiser, not in 2020, now, today, then it's just a farce to proceed with this. It's become a joke. And even we, Benji found this, So just to explain to people, sorry, World Tour teams are automatically invited to World Tour races. So there is equality in that sense. They are automatically invited. Organizers have no choice but to have them come. Dot Pro races, 
dot one races where a lot of these points and the farming for points is happening, the organizers have discretion. And one race organizer who have yeah. Lotto, the company as a sponsor, they were joking that they didn't invite EF in solidarity with Lotto. What a fast that is. Yeah, I think it was Fomin, our dance classic or something, that was joking around about about that specific incident about yeah, Lotto being at the start and EF not being at the start. Um, that's indeed that's a farce. I can't say much more about it. That shouldn't happen. That's unfair. And that's uh, a big issue in my opinion. I think if an EF goes to us to write a certain Belgian classic, they should have the same chance as a Belgian team going there. I know that financially a Belgian team going there is worth more for a sponsor of uh, a race, for example, but otherwise the competition isn't fair for the UCI points. Now, another point that I want to make, something next to this, we're talking about men's cycling UCI points. Women's cycling has a UCI points relegation system and it's active. Is that cancelled? Like, if this they, happens in men's why cycling... Did, why did they give Roland Coggis? I know they've got some okay results. Why would they have a relegation system but then give World Tour licenses last cycle to teams which are nowhere near the Trek, Yumbo, Movistar? Yes, but I think the opposing argument is that they did it in a certain way. I don't know what the specific way it was, but if I recall, at the end of this year, the top X amount of teams in UCI points from one year only, that will be defined. So having Koyas for this year as a World Tour team, I don't have an issue with that. If after that year, if they can't prove that they're World Tour, then they're out again for next year, for example. So I think that kind of solves that issue. And I think they gradually move towards a three-year system where I think there might be another one-year cycle, then a two-year cycle, and then, then it starts three-year cycles or something. It's something like that. But uh, I'll go into this at some point on the podcast once we've got a better full-on understanding of the women's cycling relegation system as well. I wrote it on Twitter at some point, but there's no way I'm going to find that tweet so easily, I'm afraid. <laughs> Other random events that, that have impacted this system for example, is um, Paris-Nice being curtailed and cancelled early, UAE Tour in 2020 being cancelled early. Now, Movistar won the Tour of Britain because it was cancelled three stages early because the Queen passed yeah. away yesterday. So Movistar had Serrano in the leader's jersey, and who knows if he would have kept it and they get an 85 point or so boost because he wasn't in their top 10 initially. Like these sort of random events are impacting the relegation. It's just, it's crazy. Uh, this simple solution, already said it before. World Tour points count to World Tour teams and the worst two World Tour teams based on their World Tour points get relegated. Pro teams have a collection of 20 pro races that they're all automatically invited to. The best two pro teams based on the points from their collection of the pro races get promoted if you want to have a promotion relegation system not hard it's how every pretty much <laughs> promotion relegation but system works i think the one issue i have with that system is when you when you say you specify uh 20 races for pro teams to score points and i think organizers would have issue with that i think one organizer will say, well, why is my race not in this? And then the other will say, why is my race not in this? And that's the one issue I see with that system. But I do agree that World Tour should be fought in World Tour, Pro Team should be fought in Pro Team. 
Conti, I'm not certain about. I'm pretty sure that Conti can just go to Protein and they've got enough money and other the other way around or something. I think that's fine. That that system. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a good point. Read the Protein. I mean, would they want to be in the collection of twenty? Then they got to invite everyone. Probably, yeah, because it makes their race much more important. Like Turner um, is all pro race. Like that view. I don't know. It's just uh, two seconds of thinking about it makes a bit more sense to me logically and then the points as between world tour and pro that discussion evaporates doesn't matter anymore it doesn't matter if pro points are worth 500 times more because it's all siloed in in each one and if you do that you can also ditch the limit of 10 riders only mattering right because i think that limit the fact that only the top 10 riders of a team matter i thought that was because they wanted to make it fair game between Wilter and pro teams. Yes. Or is that not? I, I think so. It. I don't really know. A lot I don't I don't know exactly the logic. There's no correct me if I'm wrong, like a blue paper explaining the logic <laughs> behind yeah. the entire system. Anyway, that's the news from Cycling News Today, that article that possibly the UCI is thinking of canning the relegation this year at the dying at uh, the last hour. And they will maybe make the peloton 30 riders bigger for grand tours next year instead (laughs) so that's great news anyway that's all from us today uh tomorrow sorry we haven't previewed tomorrow's stage mention we almost forgot i nearly rounded out um we'll have to do it quickly it's the medium mountain stage just uh first of all you know 10k 7% 10k 6% 10k 7% 10.5k 6% then a plateau finish does remco hold on tomorrow um i think that it's it's a big race you know it's a big stage as a stage that we've kind of looked towards in this third week as the one that could do stuff the puerto de navacerada finish and i think Remco, even the pool holds on to red simple as that i um i'm also in the status that if i don't say that now i'm going to be assaulted here in belgium so it's the only thing I can say right now. There's literally people in front of my door right now with pitchforks in case I say something different. But outside of that, I think Rodriguez is losing his position. And Rodriguez is currently sitting in the fifth position, only 25 seconds ahead of Almeida. Almeida needs to do something to get into the top five. I think that happens tomorrow because in Madrid it will be a bit late to do that for, uh, for him. Rodriguez didn't have injuries according to the tweets this morning, but he still should be... He's vulnerable after up. that crash. So if you're UAE, you exploit that, as cold-hearted as it sounds. And next to that, I think Lopez will try and attack Yuzo. And I look forward to that battle. And that's about it for me when it comes to predictions there, except for the fact that the winner of the stage is going to be... Oh, God. First of all, what do you think when it comes to GC? I think you have to get satellite riders in the break on that first climb. Soler, Verona, Oliveira... All of them, McNulty, must get in the break on the first 10k, 7% climb. You put Quickstep under huge pressure there. You then allow the break to get a decent gap. Probably do Navafria. No, don't do it hard. It's 5%. You then launch an all-out assault with uh, multiple riders on Puerto de la Morquera because it's actually decently steep at 7% and try and link up with satellite riders to pace the shallow climb and plateau afterwards. That's how I would play it. I uh, look to see Astana, Movistar, UAE, 
maybe even quick step with Masnada again, trying to get guys in the breakaway. I think Fred Wright wins, though, from the break. I think this is the one. Ooh. Flat finish, 5% climb before it. This oh. is the one. He beats Harada. Vengeance. Really? Do you think that's going to... Uh, I think... Oh. The climbs aren't that hard. There's yeah, one but... that's quite hard. Okay, I'll take it. I completely overrated today's stage 19 anyway, so with stage 20, it's possible as well. I'm going to go towards... I low-key want to say Karapaz. Karapaz has a good sprint in a reduced group. You mentioned him for today as well as a potential candidate if it went to a reduced small five-man group or something. It didn't happen, unfortunately, for our predictions in that sense. But he's the rider I'm looking at for tomorrow as well. And when it comes to GC, I want to mention that Mankeys need to go in the attack. He's 11th now on 13.53. Hindley's on 12.03. He needs to get into that top 10. Mankeys needs to be in there. I don't think he'll win because... I don't think he has the kick. And when it comes to climbing, he might be strong, but I don't think he could drop everybody in the breakaway. So I'm looking at Carapaz. Carapaz makes sense. Yeah. And he'll be in the break. He wants KOM points too. There's uh, multiple climbs. I think three cat ones. Look to see Rigoberto Uran aggressively attack Aaronsman and O'Connor tomorrow, trying to move up from ninth to seventh. Sounds inconsequential, but there's a lot of points on offer so it should be a good stage i ultimately think Avenapol will benefit from lopez ayuso and almeida attacking mass movistar having to spend to defend second quick step are relieved of the duties like we saw the other day yesterday and it's not so bad for him i think that's largely what will happen and the absence of 10 percent gradients is a welcome relief to him i think he's not quite on week one shape so Anyway, should be a good stage. Last chance to last throw of the dice to move up on GC before the Madrid sprint on Sunday. And yeah, thanks for listening as always. Thanks to Zwift. Always keen to hear your thoughts and feedback. Some good discussion points today, and we'll see you tomorrow. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 